Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hey, everyone. This is Rosemary Coates in Silicon Valley. I'm your host for this edition of Women and Manufacturing. I'm the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, where we help companies bring back manufacturing to the U.S. or expand their manufacturing here. I also run a global supply chain consulting firm where I do global supply chain strategy work, and I also do expert witness work. On these podcasts, we interview accomplished women in business and ask them to share their stories with us. Today, I'm delighted to welcome my special guest, Jill Cabano, the president of Scranton Associates. They are a custom chemicals blender for water treatment, and she's going to tell us some more about that in a minute. She's an accomplished executive and has a lot to say about women in business and how Scranton Associates made it through the pandemic. So welcome, Jill. Thank you, Rosemary. I'm happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what prepared you for running Scranton Associates, your educational background and so forth? Scranton Associates has been in business for over 100 years. We're a fourth generation family owned company. I've worked here since I was in college, so I've worked here part-time and full-time since 1999. In college, I had a major in chemistry and in education. I figured I could go either way, but then ended up not liking teaching, having it be kind of not what I thought, and then decided to go in the family business, which I never thought that I would do. For us in our family business, they pick one person per generation, and that person has to have the applicable degree and be able to, you know, obviously do the job and then have experience for five years before they come on here running a company that's the same size or larger. So that's kind of my introduction as to how I got in the business and what prepared me to be in the business. Sorry for interrupting, but so your family requires that that's the kind of background before they accept you as being a leader? Yes. Okay. So you have to have a background of studied or worked in a company or have some leadership position or worked at Scranton Associates before they let you be the leader. Yeah, right. That's fantastic. That's a great idea. I mean, you know, a lot of generational companies like that just hand it over to someone who doesn't really know what they're doing or doesn't have the right background. So that's terrific. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And, you know, we always were a family owned business, but we were owned by multiple family members. In 2016, Some of those older family members passed away and it became kind of where it was inherited by too many people. I think if you have, I guess, the old saying, too many cooks in the kitchen, there was no way that we were going to survive with that many people pulling it in so many different directions. So in 2016, I bought all of the family members out. So since then, I'm the sole owner and we are 100% woman owned. Fantastic. Good for you. Thank you. Was it hard? I mean, were they willing to give up the company for you? Some of them, yes, and some of them, no. I guess that leads into kind of my advice, you know, to back up a little bit. Scranton Associates, like you said, is a custom chemical blender. We're a 100% private label, which means we have no products of our own. We predominantly manufacture for the industrial water segment, boilers, cooling towers, wastewater, you know, things of that nature. But I kind of decided I never thought I would own 100% of the company. It just, it happened that way. And when I decided to go ahead and do the buyout, you know, there's, this will just be a very quick synopsis. 
you know, if anyone wants to contact me, they can, or I'm sure there'll be a link in the podcast. You know, it was difficult because first you have to decide, you know, when I did this, I was a woman in my 30s buying out a company that had been around for over 100 years. And it's frightening. So I got in touch with a good attorney and accountant that helped me, you know, first determine, is this something that I want to do? Is this a good idea? The second thing was, is this something I can do? And the third thing was, is how much is the bank going to give me for this? So a lot of the family members were okay with this. Some, you know, thought that it was going to be the next, you know, billion dollar company. And and we had to kind of have a meeting of the minds, so to speak, that, you know, what is the valuation? You know, that's tricky. You have to find out, you know, what it's worth, what somebody's willing to sell it for, and what the bank is going to lend you. So between my business banker, you know, it was a bank that does SBA loans, my attorney and my accountant and myself, you know, we got the deal done in a way that was favorable to me, acceptable for the bank, and ultimately ended up being acceptable for the other family members. So it was it was a difficult process, but I know that there's many steps we had to go through to make sure it was the right process. My attorney told me sometimes the best deals are the ones you don't make. So he's like, you know, at any point, if this becomes not in your best interest, you know, we have to come up with plan B to walk away. But that didn't happen. And here we are. And that was already seven years ago. Were you the designated person to take over the company by the family? Or did you just step in and volunteer? No. At the time, after my grandfather passed away, it was only my father and I working here. So it would have made more sense for somebody that had worked here to take over the company versus somebody that didn't even know what we made that, let's say, lived out of state. Right. So I, I, it was kind of like either I was going to do it or it was probably going to get pulled to pieces from the elder family members not having an exit strategy. Gotcha. Wow. What a great opportunity for you. But on the other hand, it must have been a tough tough journey to get through it all, I would imagine. Were there any holdouts? Did anybody say they didn't want to sell to you? Well, there's always, you know, buying a business is difficult, especially when it's family. So I had a lot of things, you know, all together, you know, it was figuring out the valuation, getting the deal done, being able to have these, you know, tough discussions with family members. You know, anytime you have a multi-generational company and work with family, you know, you can learn a lot about people, you know, more than just you would if you'd never worked with them. But at the same time, it's challenging because it's just like, you know, is the purpose of the business for profit or is the purpose of the business to provide people with distributions and jobs? And, you know, you have to decide, I had to decide, you know, what the purpose of the business was. Why was I buying the business, you know, to turn a profit and service my customers and my employees? Or was it just going to be simply to provide family members with jobs? And I don't agree with that. So it was difficult and it was a balancing act for sure. Wow, what a journey. And that was seven years ago, you said? Yes. Okay. So or six years ago. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Scranton Associates, what you do, and just, you know, I think explain for the audience how the private label business works. And that's, a, that's obviously a model that we see in a lot of different industries, particularly like apparel and food and places like that. So you can explain a little bit for us about private labeling and tell us about the products that you make. 
we are located outside of Cleveland, Ohio in Strongsville. What we do is we can manufacture anything that fits through our system, but nothing leaves out of here with our name. We're kind of like, if you will, we're the pharmacists and our customers are the doctors. So they tell us what they want to make. Now, obviously, we can help them. We can give suggestions if they need it or just make it if they don't need any help at all. But we make their, you know, usually industrial water treatment for boilers, cooling towers, wastewater products, put our customer's name and label on it, and then drop ship it to their customer's location. So if you have, you know, let's say an industrial water treatment business that you're running out of an office or, you know, maybe even out of your house, you know, your customers will never know that these products weren't made by you and come from you. You know, we make them here and we follow all the regulations. We have all of this special, we're an EPA establishment. We follow all of the regulations, do all of the heavy lifting, source all of the chemicals, which we'll talk about when we start talking about supply chain. You know, we take care of all of that, take care of all the shipping paperwork, the freight discounts, and your product shows up all nice and neat at my customer's customer's location. And that's easier for them because that way they don't have to have a warehouse. They don't have to have, you know, the chemical blenders and deal with, you know, all of the rules and regulations and such for these chemicals. So they're not like off the shelf sort of chemicals that you could Google and try to buy it. They're specialty blends. They are. When I say private label, that also means that Scranton has no products of our own. A lot of other you know, places will have house blends where you could order like product one, two, three, four. We don't do that because for us, that might work well for others. But for us, I feel like that makes us compete against our own customers. Okay. Wow. Really interesting. So these chemicals then are added to water sources or they treat water that's coming out of production or something like that? Um, They do a whole bunch of different things. You know, we have a lot of products our customers do, you know, for Legionnaire's disease to prevent that, Legionella. We have in industrial establishments when they have boilers, they're not like the hot water tank at your house. The hot water tank at your house needs to be replaced every 10 or 15 or however many years because, you know, it's a once through system. These large industrial boilers, they don't want to replace these million dollar, you know, items every 10 years or so. So water does one of three things. It either scales, rusts or corrodes, which is why your hot water tank at home doesn't last that long. So, for example, the boiler chemicals that we make prevent the scale, the corrosion or the rust so that these, you know, equipment can last for, you know, as long as they're properly taken care of. The things that we make for cooling towers prevent, for the most part, you know, biological growth. You know, when we talk about here, we have a EPA establishment, we have a biocide room that's to, you know, kill algae and different things like that. So they're all kind of different types of industrial waste, industrial water treatment, wastewater treatment, things of that nature. We can make other things that we do for a variety of different industries. It just really depends. We're kind of customer driven as long as it fits through our system and doesn't need dedicated equipment. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. I think in other industries, like in electronics, you would be called a contract manufacturer where one company outsources their actual manufacturing process. So it's kind of the same sort of idea, I think, where a lot of companies choose not to manufacture their own products. In your case, you also are direct shipping to your customer's customer, you said. 
So the customer in the middle doesn't have to bother with reshipping or warehousing or that sort of thing. Oh, very yeah. interesting. Very interesting. So in your company culture, when you, you were coming up and learning and working at the company, what was the job that you were doing? Were you involved in the technical side, the chemical side, or more in management? You know, as I've been here since 1999, I've done almost a little bit of everything. So I think that that's nice to now I kind of, Scranton Associates, we do the EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System off of the, if you're not familiar with it, it's the book Traction by Gino Wickman. It's kind of how we run the company with a leadership team and such. But it was nice because now I kind of consider myself to be the visionary. You know, my job is to you know, engage in in money-making activities, you know, networking, bringing in new business, doing customer touches if there's price increases or supply chain issues and, and things of that nature. But it's nice because now that I'm, you know, I consider myself to be the visionary of the company, I've had my hand and understand all of the different departments and levels and things that, you know, are necessary to make us function together as kind of one high functioning unit, you know, moving forward, able to provide, you know, the best possible service. So yes, I've pretty much done everything here at one time or another from, you know, inventory to scheduling production, to doing tests in the lab, getting formulations ready in the lab. For a while when I was in college, I spent a summer as our bookkeeper. So so pretty much everything. It's terrific. Oh, what a great background you have positioning you to lead the company. That's wonderful. Now, has your father retired also? He's on his way to retiring, but he says since he doesn't golf, he may as well still keep coming in if we need him. So I think, you know, it keeps him busy. My grandfather worked until he was 88. He didn't have to. I think he was of the mindset, use it or lose it. So I don't know towards his you know, later years, you know, how much work he actually did, but just coming into the office and talking to customers and, and coworkers and colleagues, I think really kept him like young and vital. I think it's important every day to have something to do and something to look forward to. So with this kind of family background, over generations, and you're working in all aspects of the business, what kind of company culture do you have? You know, people talk about company culture, and, and you know, that can mean a lot of things. That's one of the things where I, it's like a jargon term, I think it's become, where people throw that around. But it's, you know, how do you make company culture happen? What does it really mean? You know, and what does it mean for you and your company? You know, if you were to ask yourself, what is my company culture? I think a lot of people would be surprised if they asked their employees or their staff. Those people might not even know. Do they even know what the company's core values or mission statement is? Is that something that your company lives by? Or is that just something that's printed on the inside of your handbook? So for us, it's important to have a company culture because we don't have, for me in particular, you know, you want people to not hate coming into work every day. You want people to be able to you know, understand why their job is important, to feel valued. And I think there's a lot of ways to make that happen. But for us, paying people, I think nobody ever feels that they make truly what they're worth. But I feel like paying people a decent salary, giving people enough time to have, you know, ample vacation time per year, providing, you know, retirement and medical benefits. I think all of those things are important to our company culture to attract and retain employees. 
to make sure that we have good morale, to make sure that people understand why their particular job is important and how it fits into the company. I think every business owner also has to decide their level of transparency that they feel comfortable with. My leadership team, right now, we're not meeting as often as we were pre-pandemic. Supply chain has kind of monopolized a lot of my time. But I like for them to know, you know, how we're doing as a company and set goals because I feel that, you know, they don't need to know everything. But I feel if they know more than just I, you know, do your job, that they're able to take more ownership of it and feel like they can make more of a difference in how we do. So I think that that's important. So company culture to me is that, you know, having a, a feeling that we are really in this together and making people feel like they're valued at work. Because for us, the most important thing is being able to attract and retain. And then, you know, having people understand for us, kind of our culture, our mission, our core values is I feel like, you know, we're the best at what we do. Nobody can do it better than we can. You know, we can do it the most accurate, you know, on time. We're not the cheapest, but we're not the most expensive. So if, if you associate, you know, value for your dollar, quick turnaround, having it right the first time, you know, that's us. And I feel that the employees are all on board with that. How many employees do you have? We have 11. We are, I did the Goldman Sachs 10K small businesses back in 2016, and we were right on the border at the time for what they wouldn't accept in revenue over. So since then, we've grown maybe about $2 million a year. So I guess even with 11 employees, we're now considered a, a medium-sized business. So we get a tremendous amount of work done with the people that we have here because I don't hire temporary or seasonal. You know, the staff understands that sometimes we'll be busy and we'll have to, you know, put in a little bit extra. And sometimes we won't be so busy, but, you know, that's all kind of part of the cycle. That's terrific. Sounds like a great place to work. You know, it's that kind of transparency is unusual. I mean, a lot of companies, the leadership at companies keep some opaqueness in how they're managing the business and, you know, what their goals are and so forth. And very often employees feel like they're in the dark. So, you know, treating them like family, which it sounds like what you're doing and explaining to them what the business is all about generally translates into a, a happier environment and one where people like to work and want to come to work and want to help you as a company. That's terrific. So you mentioned supply chain also, and we know, of course, in the past couple of years, that supply chain has become just this enormous issue for all kinds of businesses, both in terms of direct sourcing from overseas sourcing, as well as domestic sourcing, big swings in demand and so forth, and you know, trouble finding component parts or raw materials. How have you experienced uh, supply chain issues of late? You know, ever since the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, we're kind of right on the front line for all of the supply chain being a custom chemical blender. When I came into the business in 99, I remember having a visit from one of our suppliers. And he said, you know, Jill, you've come into this industry at a very interesting time. From here on out, it truly is going to be in the chemical industry, a global market. You know, before 
you know, when my dad started in 1982, in the 80s, 90s, and things like that, there were a lot of the chemicals we used that you could still buy that were manufactured domestically. Now it's not so much. And it just shows, which I think everybody is dealing with, no matter what industry you're in, it just shows that, you know, our economy was never set up for the disruptions that we've been experiencing, you know, the last two years in earnest, particularly the last year. So for me, I've had to kind of take a step back from my visionary duties a little bit and kind of be on the front line of our purchasing because of even as of right now, we're not out of anything. And a lot of my competitors and colleagues are. So what that has entailed for me is, you know, making sure that we're not out of anything and that we can get things. And I think that goes back to having a trusted network of suppliers. You know, if if your business is, your margins are razor thin, you know, and our margins aren't huge, but, you know, if I have a person that I've bought chemical from for 30 years and he's two cents higher than some new person that's coming in with predatory pricing. For us, not supplier hopping and having loyalty to the people that we buy from has really served us well because now when things are on allocation or and force majeure, we are still able to get stuff. So it's kind of monopolized all my time to make sure that we don't run out of anything, that we're able to get things. But then, you know, second to that, keeping my customers, you know, up to date. A lot of my customers do a good job of through our professional associations or such kind of knowing, you know, what's going on, but, you know, some of them don't. So it's kind of my job to let them know kind of the state of the industry so that they can make sure that they can pass price on accordingly to their customers. That's another thing that I've been doing when I talk to customers and keep them up to date. You know, all of our, we used to do price lists. Now with the volatility of the market and the prices just climbing up and up and up and up because of whether it's a container shortage or, you know, it's been sitting overseas or in a rail yard accruing drayage for months or, you know, just no matter what it is, raw material is hard to find. So they're going to charge a premium making sure that orders are priced appropriately. You know, we didn't want to get to when my accountant and I just closed 2021, you know, I didn't want to sit there with him a couple of weeks ago and be looking at the numbers to find that we're X amount up in sales. You know, some of that is due to inflation and that, you know, we worked like dogs all year to find that we lost money. And I had someone that I knew of go out of business. And I'm assuming that's because they didn't stay on the pulse and pass price increases, you know, along quick enough. So kind of, you know, customer contact and communication has been key, you know, and also communication with the employees, kind of staying, you know, with my network of trusted suppliers and making sure we don't run out of anything and forecasting. Also kind of, you know, being active, which I've always been in professional organizations, and networking and and talking to, you know, peers and colleagues about what they see. It's kind of like we're all better together. So we've been navigating the supply chain crisis. It's been difficult. I hope by the end of the year that things at least start to stabilize, but it, it is a world market. And I think in the last year, it's kind of showed a lot of people what the limitations of that are. And I don't know if people will, you know, bring a lot of manufacturing back to the States 
I kind of think they're just waiting till it's over, but it's been difficult to try to navigate it, but we've been navigating it successfully and our customers are happy. We haven't lost any customers. I think that they appreciate that we're not out of anything and that we communicate with them as to why prices are going up and you know, letting them know what their current price is so that if they need to have conversations with their customers, they're able to do so. Terrific. So a couple of things that you said are quite interesting. So first of all, developing relationships with your suppliers is incredibly important when there's a crisis, right? Because you can go and fall back on that kind of relationship. They trust you. They know you. They've worked with you for a long time. There are an awful lot of you know larger companies that have industrial buyers And they're forced into a situation to look for the cheapest price and don't necessarily maintain those kind of relationships. And I think that's a very important issue to understand that there's value in those relationships. It isn't just, you know, doing the next thing or, you know, there's a constant supply, but there's truly value that you can depend on in a crisis situation. And, you know, it's important to develop those kind of relationships. I thought that was very interesting. The other thing is, so are you importing primarily from China or where are you getting the chemicals? What part of the world? Our suppliers that are importing, the folks that I buy from, a lot of it comes from India, a lot of it comes from China, a lot of it comes from Europe. So all over the place. And as we know, everything is affected, but the things coming from China right now particularly are affected. Right, of course especially with the deteriorating relationship with China over the past five years or so. Yeah, for sure. So is there any movement to try to source at least some or develop new suppliers in the U.S.? Yes and no. It's a question of, I mean, obviously we would like that because it would be easier, but it's a question of if they exist. So for us, you know, if there's not a supplier that's domestic that makes a certain thing, then that's, you know, just an option that we don't have. Yeah, I think, you know, I've interviewed lots of manufacturing companies and a lot of them tell me that while it may not exist today, they're working to develop suppliers. So especially on critical items that, you know, you're very vulnerable on to work with domestic suppliers to start to develop those kind of products in the U.S. So you don't get cut off in case of, a you know, a terrible emergency or pandemic or something where you have alternate sources. Okay, so Jill, what are your plans for the future? If you're the visionary, what do you see down the road? What are your plans? <laughs> you know, it's because I kind of came into this business, if we circle back, unexpectedly. And it was because there was no exit strategy when my grandfather and others, you know, passed away or decided to move on. It was very important to me to make sure that I had an exit strategy to protect the company. So that was one of the main things that I did that I think is important. I think all business owners have an idea of what they'd like. You don't want to put that off. I was part of a panel that spoke at an association meeting last year, and it was on exit strategies. And it was on you know what made owners be able to feel fulfilled after the sale of their business. And I feel like you know you look around the room and everybody's shaking their head, shaking their head. And, you know, I told everybody, I said, I task you within the next year, making sure that you have some idea of what your company is worth 
you know, some type of valuation and that you have some type of exit strategy, whether you're looking to sell, whether you're looking to, you know, give it to your children, whether you're looking to, you know, step back and have somebody else run the company, you know, what does that look like for you? So I've made sure that I've put an exit strategy plan A and B into play so that we have that. You know, I've always been asked, you know, how big do you want to get? I don't know. I'd be happy to expand, but it would have to be the right fit for us. So if an expansion to purchase another chemical blender came along and it was the right person and the right company and the right culture and the right fit, sure. But I think other than if that doesn't come along, I'm happy to continue to, you know, be a good steward to my company for my employees and my customers and continue to kind of grow and lead Scranton Associates into the future. I will say one key tool that's helped me, especially the last two years, is volunteering in our industry association and finding a mastermind group to be in. I think sometimes being a woman in manufacturing or just a business owner in general can be very isolating. I think my business mentor and the gentleman that leads my industry mastermind says a rising tide raises all boats. And that when you surround yourself with colleagues and business owners and worthy adversaries, you know, you're all better together. So I, I think that has helped me, you know, improve upon, you know, my management and leadership skills and also to kind of you know, make me feel like, you know, we are all in this together. What makes our companies unique? And, you know, what are things that we can work on to grow? Terrific. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jill. This is fascinating. You really have it together in terms of where you're going and how you're leading the company. And it's remarkable. It really is remarkable. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Can you give us your contact information or the company contact information if anyone wants to get a hold of you and knock on the door and come to work for you or where they go to buy your products? Sure. It's Scranton Associates is located outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and all of the contact information is on our website, which is just www.scrantonassociates.com. Okay, terrific. So you can listen to more podcasts on the Women in Manufacturing website, which is www.womenandmfg.com. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates, R-C-O-A-T-E-S, at reshoringinstitute.org. And visit our website, www.reshoringinstitute.org where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Have a great day. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.